So finally, we're going to talk about John Stuart Mill's essay, Utilitarianism, and we're going to cover what utilitarianism is and what it's not. We're going to go through a common critiques of it and John Stuart Mill's responses to those critiques, as well as what motivates people to be moral and whether or not that can translate to a rationalist framework like utilitarianism. Like, can people's religious fervor for religious morality transfer over to any logical framework and why? And maybe we'll get to the connection between justice and utility. And with that, welcome to the Reading Rebellion podcast. Let's just get straight into it. And uh, our Gen Z TikTok star is back. Yep. <laughs> We're joined by special guest today, Arik. I'm not a special guest. This is my <laughs> podcast and Ion's podcast. Well, what's more well, special than that, I guess? That's true, I guess. <laughs> I, I'll take the special, but I don't feel like I'm a guest. I'm more yeah. of a host. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're a guest now. Okay. Uh, Utilitarianism by John Stuart Mill is definitely a read. You can read it. It is an option. It's definitely a book. Um, if you want to not lose your mind, I would not recommend reading this book. Reading this book felt like trying to eat concrete with a plastic spoon. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> He's just so, like, old, you know? <laughs> you know, the irony is I actually find his writing, like, pretty lucid and readable. Like, it's, it's tough because it's philosophical writing, so I agree with you there. But compared to, like, a lot of stuff, it's, you know... Okay. More, if you yeah. have a prefrontal cortex, maybe it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good self-awareness. Yeah, yeah, that is. No, I, I mean, at your age, I, had a, I mean, it's still hard even now. It's not an easy read, but... Um, it's not like James Joyce or something. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Which is just nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We at some point uh, we can do uh, we can do James Joyce. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, it's gonna be a beast. We'd have to go on hiatus for like six months to be able to do <laughs> <episode> on Ulysses. <laughs> yeah. And we'd also want to do the Odyssey too. Yeah. yeah. We're going to do James Joyce, you got to kind of do both. Do both. It's going to be a lot of reading. Okay, so before we get into all of the explanations and stuff, Rilu, has this changed your opinion on utilitarianism? Do you still feel like you're a radical utilitarian? <laughs> well, I, I read the book. I'm looking at utilitarianism as a concept slightly differently now, but I would say that overall my views are still the same. Okay. Yeah. Do you think pleasure is the right measure of utility. I don't know if pleasure is the right measure of utility, but I think it is a valid measure of utility, and I think that it made sense for this argument. Because mm. it also depends on what you're talking about, right? Pleasure is more widely applicable than something else, like life and death, right? Yeah. I think for me, that's my biggest issue with the philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Is this idea that, like, the maximization of pleasure is ultimately utility. I'm not convinced that that's the case. Yeah. Even with his, you know, I know he goes into the higher pleasures and the lower pleasures and stuff right. like that, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when he starts talking about the higher pleasures and lower pleasures, I'm more convinced. Yeah. You know, because I'm, I don't always, like, live up to it, but my personal inner compass is not, like, let's just maximize base pleasure yeah exactly right. now <laughs> <laughs> but um you know but when he talks about like the the pleasure of like the moral sentiments of like helping other people or like the pleasure of creative expression or the pleasure of um, discovery or like intellectual 
pursuits, you know, mm-hmm. that becomes a much more um, valid criterion, I feel. Yeah. Uh, but then how do you order these and prioritize these? Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's the thing, right? Is this is a very like enlightenment style, like rationalist approach to mor- morality, right? And yeah. it's like in Western science and uh, philosophy and everything, you have this period of like rationalization and kind of like scientification. That's not an actual word, but yeah, but you know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Of, of everything, right? And he's trying to he. Has, I think his uh, who was the guy? His like mentor or whoever the the guy who first Bentham. Yeah, Bentham. Bentham. Yeah. So he has his formula, right, for like what utility is and how you can compute it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he thinks policymakers should use that. But my issue there is like again, if we go back to the higher pleasures versus the lower pleasures, like I guess I'm not convinced that it is something that you can rationalize and measure. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a tough one and. I guess another of Mill's counterpoints there is, like, what moral framework can work? Yeah. You know, and uh, there was a guy on our Twitter, Theremius, shout out to Theremius, who was making this point where he's like, you know, it's just, like, super prone to rationalization, and and, um, you can stretch it to say whatever you want. So it's like two wolves and a chicken voting on what's for dinner. Yeah. (laughs) You know? That's a good good point. Couldn't you say that about any philosophy, really, though? And that's Mill's point. It's like, you know, and you look at reality, right? Like in Burma, you have Buddhists who are, you know, committing genocide against like unarmed civilians. Yeah. I mean, you can just use any philosophy. Wait, how are they Buddhists then? That's like the opposite of what they're supposed to do. That's literally the biggest stretch you can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a stretch. I mean, but even in uh, World War II, there's a book called Zen at War where like, you know, a lot of Japanese Zen priests came up with rationale to support the war and to support, you know, suicide bombings and, um, yeah, you can, you can use any philosophy to justify whatever you want, basically, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately there's this like subjective qualitative, you know, light of awareness and common sense that you have to rely on that's like easily lost and it's hard to say if it even exists, which goes back to the the people who walk away from Omelas. Right. Yeah. Doesn't even exist the place they're walking to, you know? Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Yeah, he literally says a moral instinct is is itself one of the matters in dispute. Uh I'm not gonna set my sources. I don't I don't feel like it. It's on page six though if you wanna look at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sources of Mill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Slash the people who walk away from Omelas. Yeah. Slash anything, you know common affairs and online shit and yeah i think some uh, another thing Twitter. <laughs> pretty interesting that he said is uh when talking about what what should be considered utility the medical art is proved to be good by its conducting the health but how is it possible to prove that health is good relating to his concept of how do we know that anything really is good right like what what is good basically Right. I mean, this goes back to the the moral intuitionist idea that, like, at its core, we have to rely on, like, the moral intuitions of psychologically healthy people to tell us, you know, what's the base layer of morality, you know? Because how how can you say that health is good, right? Well, I think what he said here is that the reason that health is good is because it can provide pleasure or uh, abstinence from pain. Yeah. Which is inherently, in a way, pleasure. Right, right. And that I think that's one of the main reasons that he used pleasure as his thing, because what else do you use? 
it applies to really everything. Everything that you do has some end, and that end is either going to be good or bad. Well, I can give you an Pain alternative. Pleasure. What's an alternative? Um, the only thing that matters is battle joy, and the the sense of glory you get from decapitating your opponents. Viking style. Yeah, the only well, people in society who matter are warriors. When you die, you go to a place where you battle endlessly, and all, all your wounds heal at the end of every day, and you have a feast. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you can justify a lot of shit. <laughs> well, I mean, but does like battling people apply to everything? Right. Uh, you you get, can make it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get. But you could even argue that the Viking philosophy is utilitarian because the the pleasure from being supremely successful in battle and honoring the gods is far greater than any pain from being decapitated, because yeah. that's a base level of pain. It's very animalistic, but the <laughs> godlike pleasure of. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what they would say. (laughs) Well, then you can't have any philosophy. (laughs) Like, that's it. That's the new philosophy. You heard it here first. Reading Rebellion philosophy, you just can't. Well, that's why the the Buddha was, like, very anti-philosophical in that sense. But the problem is, even that leaves you with radical subjectivity. Yeah. 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 But, but again, like, if I'm walking down the street and I rely on my moral intuitions with some guardrails of reasoning, you can generally do the right thing. Yeah. It's like I'm walking past an old lady, punch her in the face or don't. Yeah. Don't punch her in the face. <laughs> you know? And well, you can come with a utilitarian rationale for that, but... You could also yeah. come with, with the rationale to do it. Yeah, you could. Like the one we were just talking about, the Viking. Yeah. In fact, there's a Filipino tribe of headhunters where... The young men for entertainment will find older women and hit them in the back of the head with, uh, like, axes as, as, as entertainment. What the hell? What? Yeah. Like <laughs> Antro <murder>. minor. <laughs> like, so. just just killing old, old women? Like, old yeah. ladies? Because the utilitarian calculus for them is, like, you know, this is a person who's older and they're unable to contribute to the tribe anymore. And it's fun for them. So... <laughs> okay what what's the philosophy what's the philosophy that doesn't work with utilitarianism like what's the anti-utilitarianism uh deontology is typically contrasted to it so it's like kantian like duty-based philosophy and with kant it's all like really trying to rationalize christianity so for him a lot of it was like first divorcing reason and reality by saying that our mental apparatus is subjective and interpretive, and therefore anything we experience is like just vastly divorced from any actual reality. So reason has its place, but religion has its place, and they can never intersect. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a uh, personally, I'm not convinced because um, there's a big assumption, which is like that our perceptual apparatus can just have no meaningful grasp on reality. Yeah. I I disagree with that. I think I'd also have to read it and be religious for me to truly appreciate that argument. Yeah. Neither of which I've done, so yeah, it might be a little bit of a a dif- difficult topic. But but um, you can relate to it though if you have any cherished belief. You know. Like what? Like what would be an example? Well, one example is. This counter-enlightenment anti-realism kind of flourished into postmodernism in the 20th century. Um, and for a lot of like extremely far-left or far-right radicals, um, 
looking at like the failures of their movements in real life, they're able to point at like counter um, enlightenment anti-realist arguments to be like, it doesn't matter that it didn't work because we're in radical subjectivity. It's impossible to say what is and what isn't successful. Um, So anytime you need to like protect your argument from reality, you can play this like intellectual sleight of hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting. We just had this unit in civics. I'm still in high school, so I'm still like a child. But, uh, <laughs> we just have this well, unit, smarty. and, and she, a hard work. She mm. was talking about um, talking about the extremes of the political spectrum because yeah. we're doing that in class. There's like left, right, radical, reactionary, fascist, and communist. And I think it's kind of interesting how fascism and communism are the same thing, but they're on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. It's like a yeah. circle. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Actually, that's one thing I heard is like in uh, in pre-war Germany, the same people who were being recruited to, you know, communist street gangs could next week be found in like fascist street gangs. Yeah. Because they're just like disaffected and angry and they want control, you know. Yeah, I think it's really shown by the name of Hitler's party. I don't have I don't have Wi-Fi. National Socialist. Yeah, it was like the National Socialist Conservative people Workers party. party or something. Yeah. yeah. And it just kind of appealed to everybody because he was like Hitler. Yeah, and when you saw that in the last election, like Bernie is not a communist and not an authoritarian, and frankly, whatever Trump is, I don't think he's like Hitler by any means. No. But, but the people who were like supporting Bernie when he dropped out, a lot of them switched to Trump, not to Hitler. Yeah. You know? Yeah, which is an interesting thing. Yeah. Although I think the big difference between like I think communism and fascism both like tend towards authoritarian forms of government and they're very similar in that way but they differ greatly in terms of the economics of the of the government well, system right? the main control. difference is that fascism centralized control open but it's, borders and communism does not well, well that's interesting portrayed portrayed not yeah. like the people well i also feel like in fascism it, it is centralized control but it's essentially this really aggressive expansion of like public private partnerships right and like the expansion of, of corporations and corporate control, whereas communism is really about the expansion of government control directly, right? And seizing control from corporations. Yeah, it, it sounds plausible. I mean, I'm not um, super studied on this, but that does sound plausible. Like, you know, Mercedes building tanks in Germany and yeah. Hugo Boss making uh, Nazi uniforms. And Does Mercedes have an official, like, tank? Like, no? Now? Hell no. no. Hell no, They yeah. say they, they won't touch that with a 10-foot ball. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, is it still there? Like, one of them? At I least? hope not. I mean, probably in a museum or something. Yeah. I can't, I can't like, buy a Mercedes tank, though? No, you could probably buy a G-Wagon with bulletproof windows. <laughs> <laughs> That's the closest thing, yeah. Buy, like, bring a... it to America and get a chopper and stand outside of the sunroof, but... <laughs> <laughs> get, like, the a, closest you can get. get, like, a Beretta 50 cal and just, like, put it through the windshield with, like, a tiny hole. <laughs> and, like, the, the, the turret. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the closest you can get. It's Mad Max it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you you had a good quote the other day on the, the relation between, like, animal Man pleasures and, and okay, hold on. higher pleasures. Let's see if I can find it. Yeah, because this relative ordering of pleasures is, like, important, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really what it comes down to, right? Yeah. In terms of, like, what makes this philosophy feasible. Like, I think Bentham's philosophy without this explanation of higher pleasures and lower pleasures is just... Unworkable. Yeah, unworkable. Because then we might as well just be in the Matrix. Yeah, exactly. So I think John Stuart Mill takes this philosophy and makes it, like, real, you know, makes it actually 
legit. Like, it has some meat to it, you know? Well, and what he says at one point is he's like, you know, Epicurean philosophies, because, you know, when I hear that instantly, I'm kind of like recoil from it. Yeah. I just don't think that's a way to happiness. But he's like, Epicurean philosophies, um, you know, can only really be beneficial if you merge them with many Stoic as well as Christian elements. Uh, but he also says there's no known Epicurean theory of life, which is not a sign to the pleasures of the intellect, of the feelings and the imagination, and of the moral sentiments, a much higher value as pleasures of mere sensation. Yeah, so I think, unfortunately, still, the requirement to be a moral being is to use your common sense and kind of like, you know, try to be honest with yourself and, you know, just navigate the, the maze of your mind. Yeah. To not like use these as tools to, you know, rationalize horrible things, you know? Yeah. I think that's the thing is like in your day to day life, you know, for me personally at least, I'm very comfortable with like not necessarily being able to perfectly articulate all of my moral intuitions and relying on them as intuition. You know, and I think that's probably the way most people can live and will have a productive society. I think where it gets very tricky is in policy making, right? Yeah. And that's where this kind of rationalization actually makes a little more sense because how do you reason about, you know, policies that affect 300 million people without some sort of structured framework? Yeah, yeah. That's where it comes to like the quality adjusted life years and like. Right. Yeah. I think. That to see if utilitarianism would work, there had to, there, there, we, let me start from the beginning. <laughs> if we really wanted to see if utilitarianism would work and the people and the subjects would be happy, is we would just have to have a utilitarian government, which we don't have, and I don't believe there has been any, at least not on a large scale. There are utilitarian elements in some governments, in, in most. Um, so but like, like no purely utilitarian government. No. No, and but his point actually, this goes to uh, the part where he's talking about where does, where do moral frameworks derive their like motive force, like what makes people abide by them. He talks about the fact that like there's this kind of religion shaped hole in people, and you can swap out a religious moral framework with other moral frameworks. Um, so it's possible to have a society that is um, deeply utilitarian in its reasoning. But he also says, and I find this very relevant to today, it's possible to give any set of ideas the psychical power and social efficacy of a religion, making it take hold of human life and color all thought, feeling, and action in a manner of which the greatest ascendancy ever exercised by any religion may be but a type and a foretaste, and of which the danger is not that it should be insufficient, but that it should be so excessive as to interfere unduly with human freedom and individuality. Ooh. And I love that quote. That's a good one today. Right? Yeah. In the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about fascism and communism, there's a reason they were anti-religious. Yeah. Because we were trying to fill the religion-shaped hole. With ideology. Yeah. Yeah. And today, I mean, on, on both the fringes, and even not on the fringes, like, <clears throat> politics has kind of replaced religion in many ways, you know? I like, mean, like 50, no, like, 50, yeah, 56% of America is still Christian. Yeah, but, you know, many of those are kind of, like, casual Christians, you know? Um, and not super... Here, here, here's, here's, what I, here's what I use as, a, as, like, a proxy, right? 
a couple of decades ago, people were much more comfortable with um, their kids like dating across the aisle, like a conservative dating a liberal, than um, dating across races. Now, in one sense, we've improved a ton where people are much more comfortable with dating across races. But the majority of Americans today are not comfortable with their, uh, you know, kids dating someone of an opposite political bend. I would actually... Which has a deeply tribal... Yeah. Like, an example would be um, even another, back, back to me, I'm still, like, in high school. My civics teacher, she talked about it. Her and a bunch of the kids in my class have parents that have different political ideologies. Well, yeah, that's what we're saying is the previous generation was much more likely to do that than oh. the current. So, like, pre-millennials, like Gen X, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. baby boomers, okay, yeah. okay. are more likely to do that, whereas millennials, Gen Z, are not. Yeah. Yeah, which is why I think, you know, um, I don't know what the answer is, right? Because, like, you don't, you know... Although your teacher might be a millennial, which is kind of... That's so weird. We're oh, old. You, you're ready to feel, like, really old? Yeah. yeah. You went to high school with my Spanish teacher. Oh, Jesus. Oh. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Yeah. That's oh, uncalled man, no, for. That's, that's hard. That's tough. That's uncalled for right there. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. God. All right. <laughs> this is why I don't understand TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if Jules gets a job there, we'll understand it better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I also think that more of the younger people are generally more leftist. Because I know some very conservative people. But generally, they're more leftist than, I would say, like, their parents, for an example. Yeah, 30%. I, yeah. I think that, like, now, like, kids, like, Gen Z now is going a bit more towards the middle. At least the people I know. I think that's what I've heard. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Because you guys are seeing the insanity and, like, reacting to it a little bit. What I've seen is that the millennials are just, like, going completely in opposite direction. Left is getting lefter and right is getting righter. Yeah. Yeah, the tribalism and the extremism in our generation is there. And, honestly, it's happening to the older generations, too. Yeah. I think social media plays a huge part in this, which is part of why we're doing all of this, right? Is, like, how do you take a step back out of, like, you know the filth and like look around and see what's actually happening you know not get swept up in the waves of tribalism and reaction you know reacting to things constantly and all of these things yeah yeah i think like at some point we should talk about carl rogers he was this like humanistic psychotherapist and his one of his core ideas was when you're talking to someone you're only really having a conversation if you can restate their view in a way that they approve of they're like yes that's what i'm saying and I've started to do that, and when I do that, oftentimes I don't have any arguments with people. <laughs> yeah, completely, that, that completely changes the dynamic of the entire discussion, right? Because yeah. you're actually, like, hearing, you're really hearing what they're saying, like, really understanding it. I think that's very important. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It can be really hard to do, depending on who you're talking to, but... Yeah, you may just find that actually you just agree. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like if you're talking to the guy from the Westboro Baptist Church or something, (laughs) it's going to be tough to like, you know, or if I'm talking to like my friend Alan, who's like a ultra communist, it's hard for me to like, you know, steal man his argument and really be like, okay, this is what you mean and not just like dismiss it because it's like crazy, crazy. but it's still a good exercise to try and do. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I struggle with that sometimes, too, because I hear things, and it's just like, bro, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, bro, what? It's just like... 
I'll I'll try to understand this, but just like what what how do you have a Samsung monitor and like a MacBook? That's like a crime. Oops. Sorry, that was a balloon that I touched because Ion's room is filled with balloons. Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> and like tassels. Yeah. <laughs> Very festive. Rock and Thanks. roll forever. That's what one of the tassels says. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. So, what, what was I going to say? One uh, little nuance with this is um, that um, don't, don't steal, like, steal man people's arguments if you're in a Chinese POW camp. Yeah. Because, oh yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a that's a that's a scary one. Well, because yeah. there's a bias called commitment and consistency, and so basically, it's like in 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 the Korean War, like in in Chinese POW camps, like what they would do is they'd have an essay contest, and they'd let everyone write pro America essays, but you have to concede one point to the communists. You just have to be like, hey, there's one good thing about your society. Here's what it is. Then they broadcast those essays across the entire country and they'd come back and tell you we we broadcast your pro-communist essay across the country good job you get more food you get more freedom and then slowly over time they'd like use that as a lever to like you know change your perception and it worked extremely well and then just like the vets who were in there just like came back communists some of them yeah that's crazy yeah because you're like, hey, I guess I said this thing. I must be a communist because I said this thing. To make it simplistic, you know. Yeah, that. Oh, that's so insidious. Weird. Yeah. That's one thing about America is we're very bad at psychological manipulation compared to the other powers we've been, you know. Yeah, at we're terrible. At. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> we, we used to be better at it when we just had blue jeans and like we were broadcasting Bruce Springsteen and shit. People loved that. <laughs> but now we're like, you know, even worse. Yeah. 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 Because for us, it's like private sector propaganda. You know, it's like sending out um, Top Gun. And like, yeah, you know, whatever, <laughs> Springsteen and shit like that. Yeah. What do you think those like philosophers would say if you just like gave them a can of like sparkling water? <laughs> How would they like react? I don't know. Because they've like... never had anything remotely similar to it before. Well, there's natural sparkling water. Like there's sparkling spring water. Isn't that what Perrier is? Yeah, I guess that's true. Boy, that, that's insane. No way. No, you're lying. Yeah, I think Perrier is naturally carbonated. It's natural bottled mineral water that they carbonate. It was introduced in 1898. So yeah, it's it's not it's gonna it's too late for. It's uh, just a little too late for mill. Is it uh, 98? I mean, this didn't utilitarianism was written in like what 63. Yeah, but he yeah. might add sparkling water. Carbonated water was invented in 1767. Oh wow! Whoa! By that's Joseph crazy. Priestley. Oh, that's uh, impressive. When he accidentally discovered a method of infusing water with carbon dioxide after having suspended a bowl of water above a beer vat at a brewery in Leeds, England. <coughs> Crazy. So they'd probably be like, wow, how'd you get your hands on this? Yeah. <laughs> That's the other interesting thing about these. Uh, so is there... Does, I'm assuming it's just not addressed, like, in most of these things, but is there anything about, like, slavery in this essay? Yes. Yes, there is. There, there actually is. is. Um, he says that if you follow utilitarianism, slavery is bad. Oh, okay. Now, yeah, where he yeah. says that in it, I can't find it. That's fine, but that's pretty... That's legit for the time, honestly. Yeah, yeah he, I think at the end of the essay, he says, like, something like, 
you know, over time by following a framework like this, we're going to have um, equality between people of different colors and genders and stuff like that. So it's like that, you know, human universalism um, coming to the fore in the Enlightenment, which I still agree with. I mean, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's clearly true. I don't think that's they... so. I mean, it's pretty contentious. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know that that is. Well, for example, like if I said I'm colorblind, that's like a human universalist ethos, but it's considered to be a microaggression by many. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the argument there is just that, like, you know, it's being human universalist and also celebrating the diversity in other people is is possible, right? Yeah. Like, it's not necessarily about saying we're all the same, but it's about saying, like, we're all different in various ways, but we are still the same. Yeah. We yeah. still have the same intrinsic value. It's just, like, not dehumanizing anyone, really, I think is the main thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a... This is a, this is a I, I definitely agree with, with all of that. I definitely agree with all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the issue I have with the whole colorblind thing, is because, like, we... Like, we are different. We are the same, but we are different, you know? And it's okay yeah. to, like, lean into those differences, but also, yeah. like, celebrate and appreciate people for their difference and their sameness. You can also just, yeah. like, not completely, like, trash on other people's beliefs, what even do you mean? if you don't, like, celebrate them. Yeah. Like, we don't need to go to, like, a Chinese restaurant and just, like, completely say something, like, racist, you know? And, like, yeah. tell them how this food is, like, disgusting and weird and nasty and gross. But who would do that, really? You know, it's, like, pretty Bottom small. Level. No. no. Not, like, in the restaurant, but, yeah. like, behind their back, still. Yeah, but that's, if it's behind their backs, it's a preference. And it's still, it's kind of a weird preference, because Chinese food is good, but, you know, it's, like, yeah. Like, yesterday we were at J-Barbecue, and we had a lot of good shit, but, like, the beef tongue, not my favorite. The beef tongue know? was so good, though. Yeah, exactly. So, that's It wasn't my preference, either, to be honest. It, it yeah. was pretty good, though. For like chewy. beef tongue, it was like beef tongue. It though. has the texture of a tongue. Is my problem. Yeah, that was, that was my chewy. <laughs> I had an Italian restaurant. That was my problem with it too. It's not bad. It wasn't my favorite though. My favorite was the definitely cheek. the wagyu. The wagyu was really good. Chuck the flap. Cheek, the cheek that was marinade good. on that yeah. pork cheek was really good. Too. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah, we went to a Japanese barbecue place courtesy of Oyan, and we got some like weird meats. My biggest problem with that place is I was hungry like two hours later. Yeah. Because I just ate like a pile of meat and nothing else. <laughs> we just had a pile of meat and then we went and shot for like three hours. Yeah. <laughs> and then got more Chinese food. <laughs> 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 it's a good day. Hell yeah. yeah Mill would be proud. <laughs> yeah. A lot well, of... that's, that's both our lower and higher level pleasures right there. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure of like improving the skill set, good conversation, and eating oh, Japanese yeah. and Chinese food. Well... I don't know how much you're really improving a skill set by doing sporting clays, but... You're improving the skill set of shooting. shooting a shotgun yeah. at clay birds. That's a legit skill set. Always a always a paves. You trap elitist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think mini-golf makes you better at golf. Mini-golf makes you better at just hand-eye coordination, you know? Right. Yeah. I'm saying it, it just doesn't make you better at golf. It doesn't yeah. make you better at, like, hunting. Well, that I would disagree. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I would disagree. Yeah, yeah, no, well, it by definition makes you better at aiming. Yeah, and and like the course is more like varied, varied and random. You know what? It was fun. That's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. All right. So other points here to discuss. 
Hmm. Well, just thinking, and then I forgot the thought. Yeah, what, what are some of your other takeaways, really? Or, uh... Well, I feel like a lot of it I disagreed with. I was like, yeah, this makes sense. But some of the stuff I thought was uh, kind of goofy. Uh, yeah, I thought this was pretty interesting. Quote about God and religion. If it be a true belief that God desires, above all things, the happiness of his creatures, and that, that, and that this was his purpose in their creation... Utility is not only a godless doctrine, but the most, but more profoundly re- religious than any other. I don't know why I just could not speak, but yeah, yeah. In in his essay on liberty too, um, there's a lot of references to religion just because at this time, like, it's crazy dominant. You know, like Christianity is still like the dominant paradigm. It is morality for the people of this time. Yeah, yeah. So he has to like kind of use that as like a right. reference point and. Yeah, or in on liberty too. He like the way he um, he talks about free speech is he's like <clears throat> one of the things that he says is um, great people of the church have been censored when they've been right by well-meaning authorities, you know, and like yeah. it's, you never know who's hundred. You never hundred percent know what right is, and no one person ha- has the like authority to or the knowledge to like tease it apart. Should be me. You sound like uh, a lot of people out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. I think that's one thing that's... I'm like, Zucks. Yeah. The Zucks is like, government, step in and crush my competition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and for him, it's not like it's my morality. He's like, it's an army of independent contractors who are just like having their lives ruined by looking at like horrible things yeah. all day. I saw but, a Vice video on that. It's sick it's not in a good way yeah yeah but how do you not have that um you can try to do it algorithmically but it's They've gonna make tried and mistakes. failed many times yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i guess just hopefully over time we'll be able to do it computationally more effectively yeah um, but i don't think it's gonna be there for a, a long time yeah yeah because the the Slips are just too costly. And also, if the algorithm becomes overly censorious, that's costly, too. Yeah. You know, that really, like, erodes trust. Yep. I think that what he said about the pleasures of the man and the beast was pretty interesting, too. Yeah, yeah. Where, um, the enjoyment of a human is more than that of the beast because they know both perspectives, basically. Yeah, And I thought that that was a pretty interesting thing that he said, and that, uh... It's to be considered. Uh, he also compared that with the fool and the noble, right? Yeah. It could be with real people, too. Like, uh, like let's say there's some guy, and all he does all day is he goes to a bakery, he eats a piece of chocolate cake, and then he goes outside, and he finds, like, $5 every day. Is his enjoyment from eating that piece of cake the same as the enjoyment of, like, some intellectual listening to, like some poem being read to him or something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's that hedonic adaptation, right? It's like the pain-pleasure balance. Each time you have this stimulus, like, you return less pleasure from it and more craving, you know? And, um, yeah. I mean, that goes back to Bentham, right, and why this is inherently flawed. You just create a society of stimulus addicts. Right. You know? Who are just, like, binging Netflix shows... 
you know, eating shitty food and just like pressing the button constantly and with diminishing returns where they're neither happy nor experiencing pleasure anymore, you know? Yeah, but I think that can go the other way. Like, I actually am not convinced that I agree with Mill on that. So there's this yeah. story, I think it's some folk story, or maybe it was from, uh, maybe it was a Hemingway or something. I don't remember where it's from, but basically there's a story of like, there's this guy who's a fisherman, and he lives on this island, and he goes out fishing in his little fishing boat every day. Mm-hmm. He's been doing it for years, and all he does, he goes out, he fishes, he gets food, you know, for his family, he sells a couple fish, and, and that's his life. And this, um, this like, American businessman comes in, and he's like, you know, you're so good at fishing, like, what are you doing? Why aren't you reinvesting in the business? Why aren't you scaling it up? And the guy is like, well why would I buy another fishing boat? And he was like, well, because then you can increase your profits, you can buy more fishing boats, you can hire more people, you can scale up your organization, you can start bringing in millions of dollars of revenue, and you'll run this business for like 10 years, you'll become a titan of industry. Um, And the fisherman's like, okay, so I've done all that, and then what am I going to do? And the guy's like, well, you're going to buy a fishing boat and then retire and go fishing every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So is the pleasure from, you know, arguably a more intellectual pursuit, right, of, like, trying to build up this business and, and you know, do all of that, is it really better than the pleasure of going out and catching a fish each day? Well, I think both are very similar, actually, in, in a sense, because they're challenging variable. You know, you're not constantly getting rewarded. Some days you catch the fish, some days you don't. They're both skilled pursuits. Yeah. So it's almost like what what, like... Pick your poison, you know? Yeah, it depends on the kind of fish he's fishing, because some fish will give you higher pleasure, right? Like, if it's a 500-pound, like, Atlantic tuna, it's going to be a lot more interesting, like, fishing. A lot more fishing, dopamine. Right. Yeah. A lot more interesting of a, what's the word, chase? Yeah. yeah, sure, chase, than it would be if you're, like, catching a minnow or something. Yeah, yeah. Or sunfish. I hate sunfish so much. I was trying to fillet one once after I caught it, and it stabbed me after it was dead. Damn. Revenge. So, yeah. Revenge of the Dead. <laughs> then I ate it, but it made me feel a bit better after I got to eat it. Well, that's actually a great example, though. It's like, you know, it's this pursuit that <clears throat> is not just like this simple, like, press a button, get pleasure, press a button, get pleasure. I think those are the ones that are, like, destructive to your spirit and your psyche because you're just, like, having this diminishing return and, like, you're lacking the, the variability and the dance and, like, the back and forth and the good days and the bad days. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's when it turns into Brave New World, basically. You're, you're yeah. become, like, yeah. a sack of lard who just, like, watches Netflix all day. Like Wally. Yeah. I don't know about Wally. Wally was pretty cool, though. He was, like... Not the robot. Trash. The people in, in that movie. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah well, the robot was great. Yeah. 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 Wally the robot... Real one. Is Wally like a classic movie to you? I mean, I like Wally. I watched it when I was a kid. Okay, okay. that's good. At least we're not that. Yeah. <laughs> what I was about Lilo and Stitch? Was like Snow White to you or something? Lilo and Stitch. Yeah, Lilo and Stitch is a classic. Yeah. Oh no. Emperor's New Groove. Oh my God! Shit. What? I just looked at when Lilo and Stitch came out. When did it come out? Twenty years old. Really? Seriously? Yeah. That's oh crazy. God. <laughs> they had to edit it kind of recently where, you remember the scene where she's like trying to hide from her sister and she like goes into the washing machine? Yeah. They had to make it like a cupboard instead because a bunch of kids went into their washing machine and like almost died. 
That's stupid. Yeah, yeah that's like, like Darwin Award type shit. Yeah, natural selection. <laughs> Although social Darwinism is a pretty problematic uh, concept. Concept, so we would be careful there. But. but but there is a question: Why? In the sense that, from a utilitarian standpoint, you could say, "Hey, if there are you know people who are not contributing to society, they're drawing utility away from the greatest happiness of everyone." So there's there's a reason why that's bad, and it's not ensconced in this philosophy. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I think ultimately social Darwinism is bad because it has a very troubling history and a really easy way for it to dive just straight into like genocide, uh, genocide, <laughs> eugenics, what is eugenics, like applying evolutionary and selective ideas to society where like killing it, people who are bad, basically. Yeah, it's like let the poor die. Yeah, okay. because they're you know inherently inferior and. They can't. Yeah, I don't think that's very nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think good. it's very nice or very realistic because the thing is, like, the circumstances that you're born into do greatly affect your outcomes. Right. Yeah. If someone's yeah. born yeah. like on the side of the road, then like left and is like raided by wolves, he's gonna have less money than like a billionaire son. Well, not always, but most likely, yes. Yeah, like look at Francis like, Ngannou. Yeah, Francis Ngannou. Well, I mean, he was Mike Tyson in a Cameroonian like, sand mine. Sand mine. He's a millionaire. Now he's a millionaire and the heavyweight champion of the world. And very soft-spoken. Yeah. And the hardest puncher in the world. Yeah, and oh, I, I, I always was like, when people were like, "Oh, he's so strong," I was always a little offended. I was like, that seems like it's diminishing his like skill a little bit. Yeah. But now I know the reason they're saying that is he's actually like officially has the world record for the hardest punch. <laughs> <laughs> He's They're not just strong. like, oh, he's really strong. Like, yeah. No, he is le- legitly like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, you know. Because um, they're in, oh, yeah, I think it was in Scandinavia yeah. or something, they've trained the eagles, yeah, to take down drones. Which is awesome. I hope they keep it doing it. It was in uh, Saudi Arabia or Dubai? Really? I think there's a I European country. I think it, yeah. yeah. I think there's a European country doing it that I read about. Mm-hmm. Holland but, or something. Yeah, you know, one of those. I don't know. They're just like fanciful, riding around on bicycles, wearing berets, training eagles to attack drones. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they're yeah. doing over there. <laughs> Eating stroopwafels. Yeah, stroopwafels are so good. Stroopwafels are amazing. On the one hand, I think. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of drones. Like when you go out to like a national park and there's a drone there, I kind of hate it. Yeah, yeah I, I hate that as well. They're oh. so loud. Yeah. On the other hand, though, there's a reason why Europe doesn't have as many like tech companies because instead of building drones, they're focused on training eagles to destroy them. <laughs> <laughs> they're sticking to what they know. I yeah. saw in Japan the police force because like the drug was using drones to traffic drugs. Trafficking was happening drugs with drones. Yeah. And the police made drones that had nets on them to, like, capture the other drones. That's cool. And then the, the Yakuza put dr- night net attachments on their drones. And yeah. it was, like, net war. That's crazy. Yeah. One thing I will say, actually, speaking of drones and technological advancement, though, is that's not entirely true. Because the U- I was listening to an interview with this guy mm-hmm. who has a startup doing automated drone deliveries. Mm-hmm. And their initial markets are in, like... Um, I think sub-Saharan Africa somewhere and they're basically doing blood deliveries because there's not infrastructure to like take blood out to like these hospitals. Yeah. But they've developed a network in a partnership with the government out there that allows them to 
with these automated drones, they can get blood to anywhere in the country in like an hour yeah. and a half. But they can't deploy in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because U.S. airspace regulations are extremely antiquated. Yeah, makes And there's sense. no requirement for planes to have transponders. So yeah. in um, most other countries, everything that's flying around in the air is required to have the special transponder that allows everything else that's in the air to know that it's there. Yeah. In the U.S., that's not there. Yeah, I mean, the Why? U.S. regulatory... Yeah. Because a lot of people have older planes. People started flying here a lot earlier. So there's a lot of things that are grandfathered in, basically. Because yeah. that's how U.S. policy tends to work in general, right? We restrict things... That's how all policy works. Yeah. yeah. We, we don't... Well, I mean, in Australia, they took away the guns. They weren't grandfathered in. Yeah, but, I mean, Australians are literally, like, it's gone back to being a prison camp for them. <laughs> <laughs> They're just throwing shit on the Barbie. Yeah, they're, they're just throwing shit on the Barbie. <laughs> they're back here. As Tim Dillon would say. Tim Dillon's show. Yeah. <laughs> but, a bunch of criminals and a bunch of prison guards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but that's essentially why. But anyway, I just thought, you know, it's... Uh, no, I mean, the, we, we probably the, dynamic the Europeans and stuff there as well, because they would probably just say, no, screw you, you need transponders. Mm, no. Europe, this is America. We don't, the, the, we don't, we don't support those Europeans. The European regulatory regime is like pretty harsh to, uh, like you know, it's, there are, there are European company countries where it's easier to start a business in the U.S. for sure. Really? The U.S. is like maybe like thirtieth or fortieth uh, as far as like the easiest regulatory regime. So we don't succeed here because of that. But the private sector uh, and the culture here. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Like one thing I heard just colloquially is like when you're trying to start some shit in. Europe or in, or in England, like a business, people don't really like encourage you the way they do here. Yeah. Whereas here, people are very encouraging. You know. Yeah. No one's like, oh, like what the fuck are you doing? But like, really, people are always like, oh, cool. Like, how can I help? Like, that's awesome. You know. Yeah. yeah for yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. Hey, I, I totally agree. So I think it's that ethos. Like, yeah, our government, I mean, does not really help us at all. We pay them eight hundred dollars to make zero money. <laughs> yeah. Like. More than that. More than that. A lot more than that. Yeah. California has, like, a minimum tax for all businesses, no matter what, like, no matter how much money you make. Weird. And it's 800 bucks a year. Because business is the guy in Monopoly, right? It's the guy with the top hat who's, like, you know, stealing from the poor. It's not just a bunch of people talking about John Stewart Mill and trying to make a gamified reading app to help you, <laughs> you know, be consistent with your intellectual diet. And help you diversify off of just BuzzFeed. (laughs) (laughs) Though you guys are reading good shit too, but I'm just saying, we we all, you know, we all have our, like Mill is saying, we have our higher order pleasures and our lower order pleasures, you know? Yeah. That's true for all of us. So any final thoughts on Mill? I don't know. I think the interesting thing about Mill's philosophy is when I try to look for if I have to choose a rationalist framework for philosophy of some sort, right, Mm -hmm. and I am not just going off of, you know, quote-unquote obvious moral intuitions, Mm -hmm. then I think that, you know, utilitarianism is probably pretty high up on the list, especially as compared to, like, the deontology and stuff like that, because, like, I think my issue with deontology is essentially about, like, having a set of rules, right, and living by those rules, but the rules that most people choose are just not necessarily ones that I would agree with. I would say the two examples, or the few examples that come to mind are, in in Kant's case, it's 
Christian ideology, right? right? And obviously there are good things in Christian theology, but I'm not a Christian. Um, and then, you know, um, these extreme political leanings, I think, are the other real examples of, like, yeah. deontology, right? Like, fascism, communism, today, like, far left and far right. Yeah. I think that's where we really see the deontology. Yeah. I think that's clearly, to me, a much worse, much more harmful ideology than utilitarianism. So, yeah. I guess... Like with most things in philosophy, my closing thought is just a little bit wishy-washy in that it's a very interesting philosophy. It's an interesting way to view the world. Yeah. I don't 100% agree with it. I don't 100% disagree with it. I probably agree with it more than with most other formalized philosophies. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'd say that I would agree with it for the most part. There's just like uh, some like intricacy that I don't know if I 100% agree with. But I think his concept with the pleasure and the play, pain is pretty good. And I think it's one of the most applicable things. Because like you said, you could make it like battle joy. Yeah. But that's a little bit more difficult to apply to some things, like reading a book, right? And I think for the general, for the average person, they always experience some pleasure or some pain mm-hmm. from everything that they do. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's definitely true. And as a general moral framework, you know... It probably precludes most of the worst actions, but it can be used to justify anything if you stretch it enough. Yeah. yeah. Anything can be used to justify anything if you stretch it enough. Yeah, yeah. Like the Buddhists were gen- genociding, right? That's... Yeah, yeah. And that's Mill's point, is he's like, no moral framework stands up to an assumption of like universal idiocy. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. I think that's probably his most compelling argument, in a way. Um, and his argument that basically, like, you know... If not this, then what? <laughs> yeah. And it's also like, you know, sacrifice is only good if it increases the sum total of happiness. Yeah. Because you think about, like, for example, like, human sacrifice, right? In various, almost every tradition at some point. Um, it's sacrifice for its own sake as a symbol, but it doesn't actually do anything, you know? Right. Um, but then again, those people would argue that it's whatever pleasing the sun god and that's gonna lead to the benefit of everyone in society right because they didn't have the rationalist tools of science to be like well we've tried this 17 times and it hasn't worked (laughs) (laughs) um there's there's another point that he made in here that i thought was really uh interesting which is like he talks about how like in a perfect world sacrifice wouldn't be necessary but we don't live in a perfect world and therefore one of the best things you can do as a utilitarian is sacrifice yourself for the greater happiness of other people. And he also talks about the fact that, like, for Stoics and, like, Buddhists, not overly focusing on your happiness under this scheme might be one of the best ways to ensure your own happiness because you're not, like, building up all these expectations that are out of sync with reality and, like, constantly chasing pleasure. Um, So even even an approach of not chasing pleasure... Uh, is is sanctioned under utilitarianism the way Mill puts it as like a valid um, and and perhaps a, a good way to to live considering the reality we live in. So it's pretty all encompassing in that sense. But I think next week will do a lot for us though because when we talk about the life you can save, we can see the real life applications of this stuff. Right. So the life you can save is about. Being able to maximize the impact you have for each dollar of, like, philanthropic giving you provide. And it starts with this parable where, like, let's say you're in a really nice suit, like a $3,000 suit, and you're walking by a lake. 
and you see a child drowning. Would you jump in and save the child? Take the suit out, then jump in. Let's say you can't, because he's like drowning right now. He's about to drown. You have to like run right in. Okay, sure. There you go. How much is the life worth, right? How much? Well, his point is using like known interventions. You can save lives for that amount of money, and the only difference between reality and that parable is distance. That you know the lives you can save are not here, but using you know vitamin A supplementation, um, malaria medication, stuff like that for two to three thousand bucks, you can save lives. You contrast that with the typical approach that philanthropy people have, which is more like, you know, what do I feel good about? Like Coney twenty twelve, this seems like a thing I can get behind, or like whatever it is. That's fine too. That's that's a valid approach, but it can't be, according to Peter Singer, it can't be instead of maximizing the good. Um, and there's a lot of debate and, and argument there, but if everyone took that approach, we would, you know, have a massive impact, millions of lives saved. Um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to talk about. It. Yeah, I think that will be interesting. I think what I'm really curious about is what about you know, non-human good, and where does that fit into this picture? Yeah. Because um, obviously for me, I mean, you know me, that's going to be a big, big thing for me. Um, yeah, yeah. And I strongly believe in, like, the intrinsic value of nature um, and, and conservation for the yeah. sake of conservation. Now, admittedly, when I'm trying to have, like, policy discussions, I try not to bring that up because especially, like, you know, people's eyes glaze over. So I tend towards, mm-hmm. you know, economic and rationalist arguments for conservation yeah um because i think more people can relate to that but yeah it's an interesting thing well yeah yeah, i mean a lot of peter singer's point like is contingent on the idea that all lives are equal but then you could ask what about animal life what about plant life um and i think it's a it's a valid place to take the argument is the life of a housefly worth the same as the life of a human for me no (laughs) yeah yeah for me, no, but you have to re- argue why that is, you know? Because the housewife is going to die in, like, a day anyway. Yeah. All right, so, yeah, join us uh, at... Agree? That's a, that's a fair point. Join us at rdmr underscore io on Twitter. Hit us up at... Uh, Contact at rdmr.io. And join us next week for... It'll be two weeks, because I'm going to be out next week. Oh, yeah, so join us next week for... Um, Descartes' error, which is about um, the connection between reason and emotion in neuroscience and how you can't reason without um, emotion through like a series of case studies where we look at people who had brain damage to the emotional centers of their brain. And then the week after, we'll do part three of utilitarianism on the life you can save. And that's it. All right. And...